Welcome to The Debrief, everyone. An arraignment today for the wealthy Connecticut man and two others suspected in the disappearance and presumed death of Jennifer Dulos. Fotis Dulos is accused of capital murder. That's life in prison in Connecticut. Girlfriend Michelle Traconis is accused of conspiracy to commit murder. Attorney Kent Mawinney, said to be a close friend of Fotis Dulos, is also charged with conspiracy to commit murder. These charges all stem from the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos, the estranged wife of Fotis Dulos. She has not been seen or heard from since dropping her kids off at school on May 24th last year. Michelle Traconis told authorities that Fotis Dulos told her Sometimes I hope she disappears with reference to estranged wife Jennifer. Attorney Norm Pattis said he's relieved in a way that murder charges finally came in this case. Now he has the ability to see the state's evidence and if he chooses to force a speedy trial. Judge, we think that six million is excessive. We're asking for a bond of one million dollars. Here's why. Uh, Mr. Dulos was arrested in June of this year uh, and said the facts set before the world that accused him effectively of murder. Um, he made a $500,000 bond, was fully compliant with the court's orders. Additional charges arose after additional evidence took place, again, charging with hindering and making what we think are extraordinary allegations about what state police believe and so forth. We waited for months in anticipation for this warrant, wanting to see whether these beliefs would be produced or supported by fact. And the warrant we read last night offers us perishingly little that differs and advances a new theory of the case. Prior to yesterday, the motive was Mr. Dulos did this to extinguish his wife to end the bitter divorce. Now it's to gain control of the trust fund. The case is actually charged in the alternative. It's either murder or it's felony murder arising out of a kidnapping. As to the strengths of the state's case, I think the state is still groping in the dark, grasping at straws, and it has thrown now a dart at Mr. Dulos, which has landed. He has been fully compliant with your orders and is out, or was until yesterday, on a $1 million bond. We received information from a credible source that he was about to be arrested. I traveled to his home, arriving before the state police, and brokered a friendly transaction. It was tense and sorrowful, as you can imagine such a thing would be, but he cooperated even there. The state sought a $2 million bond for Michelle Traconis. Her defense filed a motion to reduce it down to $1.5 million. And I would ask that the court set the bond at $500,000. That would be a total of $1.1 million. She has never failed to make an appearance. She's in full compliance with all the conditions of the court. She's charged with conspiracy. Um, she had no benefit um, from the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos. I would ask the court to set the bond at $500,000. Well, the defendant has been compliant with her conditions of release. The warrants indicate some level of cooperation with the authority level, and she, she has been compliant. As I said, there have been no GPS changes. She continues to charge the device appropriately, no issues according to the Office of Probation. Therefore, the court will set on at $1.5 million for the defendant with the condition of house arrest. Um, the only exception will be for medical appointments, church services, and meetings with defense counsel. No contact with the co-defendant. Prosecutors accused attorney Kent Mawinney of trying to evade police yesterday when he heard there was a warrant out for his own arrest in this case. Mawinney's attorney said Mawinney is an attorney himself and a good member of society. But let's not forget, Mawinney is also accused of raping his own estranged wife. You look at the warrant, 
I struggle to find the, the case that the state will eventually prove here to show an agreement, to show a conspiracy. Um, and I, I don't think it's a strong case against Mr. Mulroney. Um, and for those reasons, Your Honor, I do request that that, that, that uh, bond, keeping in mind, again, he's a sole practitioner who will hopefully be able to continue to service his clients in the courthouses throughout the state while the case is pending and earn a limit. Thank you. Is it true that one of your clients' pending charges involves a violation of a court order? It does, Your Honor. It involves a violation of a protective order. Well, in light of that, in light of the gravity of the offenses charged, I'm going to leave the bond that's set at $2 million. With me tonight are attorneys Anna Yum, Stacy Schneider, and Eklund Mercy. So, Eklund, I'll start with you. That attorney we just watched there is accused of digging a hole six feet deep in the ground at a gun club, putting grill grates over the top of it, covering that all with a blue tarp, and somewhere in there were two unopened bags of lime in it. Is this a gardening experiment, or is it a place to hide remains in the death of Jennifer Dulos? Well, if I was his attorney, it is merely uh, it was a Halloween trick that he was waiting you know, to scare children. You are going to try to figure out any other ways for that because <clears throat> the argument, if the state uses that, that that grade was for the body, then a body would be in it. So I think that the state, well, the defense has a great argument of corpus delicti, which is the body of the crime. We need the facts and circumstances to prove, to constitute that there was a break in the law. They don't have that, especially if you don't have a body. Right now it's just speculation. So it's like a big old game of Clue, you know? Oh, yeah, so I think he talked about that. I think he, you know, he said that he wanted his wife to disappear. I know a lot of married men who want their wives to disappear. And then, you know, so um, I think that the state has a really, really big, big battle to climb, and I think that the defense has a really awesome defense. You sound exactly like what Norm Pattis told me outside court today in that hearing. So, Anna, let me ask you this. Authorities recovered a so-called alibi script written by both Dulos and Traconis, the ex-girlfriend, Michelle Traconis, accused of sticking to the script at first and then changing her story in law enforcement interviews. I think the case against her looks a lot stronger than perhaps we all thought. I'm thinking this might not be a sweetheart deal, assuming there will be plea talks. What do you think, Anna? That's right, Aaron. If the prosecutors can connect these alibi scripts to what uh, Dulos's girlfriend's involvement allegedly was, then I think it's somewhat damning for her. Because if you have these alibi scripts that were, of course, found in the trash, and these alibi scripts are changing, especially in light of how many times she changes her statements to the police and how many inconsistent statements there are, then I think the prosecutor's case gets that much stronger against the girlfriend. But if you it compare... If you compare the girlfriend with the other two co-defendants, then you have to look at the level of involvement and how involved is she. Is she the heavy or not? And if she's not the heavy, then it's about putting pressure to see if she folds. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say there. So let's jump in with this now. Stacey, after court, defense attorney Norm Pattis said he didn't know what happened to Jennifer Dulos. Of course, it's not his job to prove it. But he also said an axe recovered from the home of Fotis Dulos had zero value to the case. He said that... If the axe had value, it would have been disposed a long time ago, along with the other things that they're accused of disposing, the defendants are accused of throwing out. I sensed a bit of a shift away, however, from the original statements that Jennifer Dulhos was somehow still alive. Uh, do we have a shift here? What's going on? It seems like there's a bit of a shift in the defense tactic by Dulhos's lawyer. He is now focusing on... What is the evidence against my client? And whatever little evidence that's leaked out through the warrant affidavits and search warrants, he's kind of distancing himself or making, distancing his client rather, and making some kind of 
excuse or reasoning why those items might have been highlighted by law enforcement. So there is a shift away to there's no body, there's no crime. Pattis basically uh, coming up with possible theories here as a defense. Question is, how's it going to work? Those high bail amounts remaining in place against Fotis Dulos. Now let's move on to other cases. Big moves today from the defense in the trial of Harvey Weinstein in New York. Attorneys for the former movie producer are asking the judge there to step down from the case all over the judge's threat to throw Weinstein in jail for life after the judge found Weinstein using two cell phones in court in violation of the rules. The defense says the judge's comment was out of line and shows bias. Weinstein faces the list of charges on your screen right now in this upcoming New York trial. Predatory sexual assault is the most serious charge with a possible life sentence. The first two charges on that list relate to the first accuser. The next three relate to the second accuser in New York. The defense also had another key request for the judge today. Law and Crime's Jesse Weber has been in the courtroom for us this week. Inside the New York Supreme Court on day three of the Harvey Weinstein trial, the pre-selection process for jurors is continuing, but we saw some excitement earlier on in the morning, and it concerned Gloria Allred. The defense made a motion to kick her out of court. That's right, they wanted her kicked out so that she couldn't attend any of the proceedings. Why? Well, one of the reasons was because it's believed she is going to be called as an impeachment witness, and therefore it's not appropriate to have a witness in this trial sitting in for all the testimony. It was also the the idea here that she represents some of the complaining witnesses and she could go back and tell them what's been happening during the course of trial. Now the prosecution made a really good point saying that well if that's the case then let's kick out all the media because they're reporting on what happens on the trial day in on day out. Ultimately the judge said that Gloria Allred can stay and even if she observes the trial even if she is called as a witness it's not a very big deal and therefore she will stay and ultimately continue to give Harvey Weinstein a cold stare, which is something that I observed in court yesterday. She was sitting actually across from him and was looking at him. And it's also believed, based upon what she said during her press conference, that she might have been responsible for telling the court that he was using his cell phone inappropriately, which begs the question, man, it's probably why the defense doesn't want her in it anymore. She is a thorn in his side. I'm Jesse Weber reporting for Long Crime. Okay, let's go back to our experts tonight now. So, Anna, these are some pretty strong moves by the defense in this case, but look, they're trying to defend the client with gusto. That's what we're seeing here. Do you file to kick Gloria Allred out of a courtroom and expect to win? No, no, I don't think that they expected to win that point at all. But to Jesse Weber's point, she is a thorn in their side, and they're doing what they can to try to defend him to the best of their ability. And filing that motion to recuse Judge Burke, wow, that was a bold move because it's either going to be a long and miserable trial for them because if he doesn't recuse himself, he already knows how they feel about him. Or maybe strategically they decided to do that because they're thinking, well, if he's overly harsh with them or if he's <laughs> what seems unfair or improper, then maybe he'll back off a little bit and give them a little leeway. So I think it was a very bold move, but I'm interested to see how Judge Burke is going to respond to that because I doubt he's going to recuse himself. And how is he going to act throughout the rest of the trial? That's the question. Yeah, exactly. Eklund, so usually judges don't like to be asked to step off of a case, and usually they don't voluntarily step off a case unless there are really clear reasons to do so. For instance, the judge used to practice law with one of the attorneys litigating the case. Absolutely. And there, you know, with this particular case, I, I think that the motion should have been granted. 
Um, once you, you know, this, this case, this magnitude of this case, this movement that, you know, Harvey Weinstein's case is, is going to be the face of is, is serious. So the judge, although I have had my share of snarky judges, this is not the time to be snarky. So they had every reason to file this motion. And with regards to, you know, um, Gloria Allred, I understand I would have to file certain things for my client. He's looking at life in prison, and we need to be focused on the jury and jury reaction. Now, I can't have my client focused on, you know, the jury helping me with um, representing him while he's while he has a woman out here giving him the death stare. So, I mean, I, as a, I mean, as an attorney, I definitely understand why they filed that motion. Okay, so Stacy, the big question here is: Let's say this judge stays on the case. Is the comment reversible error? Could an appeals court actually do anything with that, or is it just not enough? The comment's really worth nothing. I I differ with my colleague at the bar. I think it was a very poor choice for a tactical move to move to recuse a judge on the eve of trial. This team that represents Harvey Weinstein is Chicago-based. The lead attorneys are from Chicago. And all I can say to them is, welcome to New York practice. This is a sarcastic courthouse. The judges are tough. They speak their minds. And I say to them, get over it. Uh, you're being crybabies to file a motion to recuse a judge. It was never going to get granted. If you know anything about Judge Burke, he has a very sarcastic demeanor at times, but he's also known as a very fair and impartial judge. And to make a motion like that, you should have known that it wasn't going to survive. And it's just too petty of an item. Other than a straight-out conflict that the judge would have with the defendant, uh, don't do something like that. Good opinions here from the panel tonight. A Texas woman, meanwhile, is accused of kidnapping a mother, and she is also accused now of hatching an elaborate plan to pass the mother's baby off as her own. Investigators last month found infant Margot Carey, along with the dead body of mother Heidi Broussard at a home near Austin. The defendant and the mother used to be friends, and both were thought to have been pregnant at the same time. According to new court documents, Fira Muska, the defendant there, claimed to have given birth days before Broussard's death, but there's no evidence that's actually true. Firamuska's boyfriend told the police that the missing poster for the baby showed the baby Firamuska had in their home. One of the men, meanwhile, accused of killing a Georgia beauty queen in 2005 has lost yet another appeal. Ryan Duke is charged with murder and other offenses in the death of 30-year-old teacher Tara Grinstead. A Georgia court ruled the state doesn't have to pay for Duke's defense to hire outside investigators. The court said that Duke's defense took the case for free and cannot pick and choose which state-provided services he can receive. And still ahead here on The Debrief, testimony from medical experts in the trial of an Ohio mother and father accused of murdering their baby who was born hooked on drugs. We break down the testimony and the legal tactics after these words. Let's move now to the Ohio trial of a mother and father accused of murdering their infant. Jessica and Daniel Groves face a list of charges over the death of Dylan Groves. The defense said he died on March 28th. That's about two and a half months after everyone admitted that the little baby was born hooked on drugs. Authorities say the little boy was murdered, wrapped in plastic bags and duct tape, and then put in milk crates bound with chains, padlocks, zip ties, and wires. That so-called coffin was weighted down and thrown in a well. Testimony revealed the baby was a smooth delivery, but doctors and nurses began examining him, and it appeared he might not have been healthy. The baby was born, it um, was charted that he was um, dusky and pale, 
um, not breathing well, he was retracting. These are things we usually see after excessive drug use in an infant. How Dylan um, acted when he was born, he was taken to the nursery and put on oxygen. And after that, Jessica or Daniel did not request to see him. In the sense of a brand new baby, it, not interested. Do you recall observations of Mr. Groves when he first came into the hospital? He seemed um, worried, almost um, afraid. The only thing that was stated to me by him was that she had um, used heroin and that she was always too high to go to her prenatal care visits. We thought um, he was almost looking to her for um, permission to answer our questions. Um, I could tell a couple of times he wanted to say things or answer, and he did not. That same nurse says neither defendant was belligerent during the baby's delivery, but she noticed Jessica, the mother, had an apparent control over Daniel, the father. Here's cross-examination by attorneys for both defendants. It seemed to me that she was using drugs. Okay. From your experience and her demeanor or observations? Um, both. Her okay. demeanor and, her observ or, and my observations. Your words were that you felt that Daniel wanted to be more involved in this process but I wasn't for sure what word you exactly used, but almost as if Jessica's presence there and her uh, control over him was almost intimidating him yes. and, not, and not answering the question, correct? Correct. And almost as if he would um, suffer some repercussions if he was honest and forthright, correct? Correct. Social workers initially placed baby Dylan with a foster mother, but they then worked out a plan to return Dylan to his father. The baby's caseworker says the defendants failed to contact her or to show up for appointments. She became concerned in April for both baby Dylan and the defendant's 14-year-old son named Daniel Jr. I continued to try to make contact with them throughout from the 19th. I went on the 22nd, the 23rd, okay. the 24th. At this point, were there any thoughts to remove baby Dylan from their care? Yes. Okay. At this point, were there any thoughts with regard to Daniel Jr.? We had took custody of Daniel Jr. on the 24th. Then we went to the school to talk to Daniel Jr. We just asked about Dylan, and he stated he was fine. I also asked him about his mom staying at the house, and she, he said yes, and then said occasionally. I did. A request to tell his dad that I needed to talk to him ASAP. I received a text at 7:52 a.m. stating that he would bring Dylan to our agency the first thing Tuesday morning. Did Mr. Groves bring baby Dylan in that morning? No. After they failed to show what happened next? On the 30th I filed a missing person report. Who did you file that report with? Scioto County Sheriff's Department. The defense for Jessica Groves called the caseworker about March 28, 2019, grilled her over that date. That's the last time the caseworker says she saw baby Dylan, and it's the date the defense says the baby died. At first, but before I left, I got up, walked over, looked at him. I made three statements, uh, two statements. I made, I wonder if he's going to have natural curly hair like his dad and brother. He has the prettiest blue eyes for a baby. And I touched the bottom of his foot and he grinned. Patricia Kraft, you know that's not a true statement, that you did none of that, that you merely glanced at Dylan and did not actually observe him, did you? Objection sustained. Rephrase your question. Make the question not a statement, Mr. Chairman. 
I think it's curious that you make the statement that you heard him make no sounds, no crying noises or anything, did you? Not while I was visiting. Okay. Mrs. Kraft, do you think you did your job to the best of your ability? Yes, I did it within the law. The only thing I didn't do was bust the door down to find that baby. Let's jump back in with the panel now. Anna Yum, I'll start with you. A lot of people are saying this is a social services caseworker failure, but she defended herself on the stand there. Yes, she did, and she defended herself to the best that she could. And that last question that the defense attorney asked her, I didn't understand where he was going with that, but she has to. What, what other decision does, can she say? I mean, they gave the baby back after 12 days. She has to say that she's, the baby was okay, that the family was okay. There's only so much she can say given these facts, and I think those are the questions that the jury's going to wonder. Why was the baby given back so fast? So, Eklund, here, look, I mean, we've got the defense attorney seemingly attacking that witness, saying, in essence, without saying it, that this is a social services failure. But that same defense attorney was the one up there during opening saying the mother is going to take responsibility for this right here, right now. Did he lose credibility with the jury? No, but I don't think so, because I, I do think that um, he does have an argument. Um, that it was a social services failure. The fact that you have the child born on drugs and then in 12 days, did you think that there was a full recovery? Um, Jennifer and um, Jennifer and I do believe uh, Daniel are married. They're married. So we don't have proof. That means that they're going to be together. So if you give it to the father, you essentially give it to the mom. And then, like, there was no plan for reunification. Do we have a, a, a negative drug screen to, before you just hand over children? So I do believe that the defense is doing a great job at attacking the, um, the caseworker. I would do the same thing. And Stacy, quickly here in the remaining time we have, if you're the prosecutor, do you ride with the defense theory that the mother is the killer and drop the top charges against the father, or do you go full throttle after both? Depending on what the prosecution has on the father, I think it makes their job a lot easier that the defense attorney has a defense where they're taking responsibility and assuming proof on some of those charges. we got to wrap things up here. Thanks a lot to the panel. It's great discussions here tonight. Good insight into our cases. We'll be back here live on The Debrief at 5 o'clock with our recap of the day in court.